Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Hi everyone, welcome to episode 174 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, Andrew Frankel, my co-host, and this week a guest, Mel Nichols, one of our contributors um, on the Intercooler and perhaps one of the most highly regarded car journalists alive today. He's worked in the industry for 50-something years and we've got him on this week because we want to talk about the very significant individuals from across the automotive industry who we've met and of course, Mel has met more of these astonishingly influential characters than just about anyone in this line of work. So he talks about meeting Enzo Ferrari, Ferruccio Lamborghini, Sochiro Honda and others. It's just extraordinary. Um, but before we get stuck into that episode, we've got our first live podcast recording coming up later this week on Thursday at Henry's Car Barn. Um, and we're extremely grateful to Classic Vehicles insurance specialist Footman James um, for sponsoring that event. So we're very much looking forward to it. If you've got tickets and you're going to be there, we're looking forward to meeting you. And we are recording the podcast, so that will go out very soon um, for everybody else to listen to. We've got Henry Catchpole there as our special guest. Um, so hopefully that's going to be a good episode as well. But this one... All about meeting the titans of the automotive industry. I hope you enjoy it. We're talking about the titans of the automotive industry that we've met. Um, Andrew and I, we've met a few ourselves. But it made sense, didn't it, Andrew, to bring in another one of our writers, someone who's had the good fortune to have met, my goodness, some of Everybody. the biggest actually household names in the car industry now, Mel Nichols. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure, Dan. Good to be with you guys. Yeah, so um, regular TI readers will know that Mel is one of our favourite journalists. Mel, you write some brilliant stories for us. Um, we're delighted to have you on our writing team. Now, we're doing this now because last week we published a two-part story by you on Bob Lutz, um, who 
I mean, you talk about car industry titans. Goodness me. His, his career, as you um, detail in your two pieces, was really quite extraordinary. Um, can you tell us when you first sort of came across him and what your first impressions were? I didn't meet him when he was at BMW between 1971 and 1973, where he made a huge difference. We'll come back to that in a while, I think. But I met him just after he'd gone to run Ford of Germany, and within months it was clear that he was making a big difference there, Um, not least because he was, as he so um, proudly describes himself, a car guy. Um, And by then, after just a few years of writing about cars and meeting people in the industry, you knew that not many of the people who ran the big companies were actual car nuts. They were, as Bob calls them, bean counters. Um, So the first time I met Bob at um, a Ford launch, I can't remember which one it was, but suddenly there's this tall, extraordinary-looking, handsome man who you you discovered had been crikey, um, a U.S. Marine's jet fighter pilot um, who really knew and understood about cars. And whatever car you cared to mention, he knew about. He had a large collection of his own, um, and he was just an out-and-out enthusiast. So suddenly you could um, have a detailed, wonderful conversation with him in a way you just couldn't with most other people at the top of the car industry. Um, and internally at Ford, he started pushing on to improve the cars, to liberate the designers, because he knew how important design was. And if you think about it, the first thing people see of a car is the way it looks. And Bob knew the self-obvious thing, I think, that if you look at a car and you say, wow, that looks great, I'd like that, it really is as simple and emotional as that. And he deeply understood that. Um, but so often the process of making cars, um, the design had been um, overwhelmed by other factors, usually cost, often time. Um, so the designs would, and designers would come under great pressure to um, dilute their designs. And, and sometimes cars would emerge that weren't really what the designers wanted or the designers weren't being encouraged to come up with something particularly inspiring. And so he clearly a a very effective operator um, and having spent time with Mm. him, do you get that sense from him? Does it make sense to you that he can win people around and encourage people to see things his way? Does he have that kind of charisma? He does. Um, He does have enormous charisma. Um, um, But you, and also though, he's so, he has such a deep, base of knowledge um, across the industry and across all of motoring's history, really, um, that it's easy, easier for her to for him to win arguments, I think, um, because he's able to um, produce facts and, and a perspective that few other people have. Um, he's, as he says himself, I'm often wrong, but I'm, I'm, I never have self-doubt. Um, so his sense of... Um, um, self-belief does come across and that alone is difficult to argue with but also when he believes that something should be done because it's right or because it's better and in the end it will make a better car which is really the thing that's always driven him just making better cars he does push very hard even to the point of 
um, a great personal risk, and that happened many times, not least when he was at BMW and Eberhard von Kuhnheim um, was then the uh, chairman and CEO. Uh, he was only four years older than Lutz. Lutz was 40 when he went there to BMW. Um, and um, uh, so they always saw themselves, or von, Kuhnheim, von Kuhnheim always saw Lutz as a potential rival. Uh, when he started to realise how capable Lutz was. But so Lutz constantly argued with um, von Kuhnheim, um, particularly uh, about things that Lutz believed would be damaging to BMW. Last bit on Lutz then, before we move on to some of the other figures that you've had the good fortune to meet. Was that basically why he didn't ascend all the way to the very top CEO of any of the De- Detroit big three, for instance? Was he just too argumentative? Was too much of a nuisance? Yes, he was. Uh, as he said himself, if he'd been, in his words, less generous in his criticism um, of people at the top of the com- companies and often their cultures, um, he may have done better. However, I think there's another element that was raised by Patrick Le Camon, um, when I was researching uh, the stories that we've just published on the intercooler, Patrick said something that I think is interesting and very accurate, that there was this man, six foot three, a striking, handsome man that everyone knew had been a U.S. Marines fighter pilot um, who knew about cars, who connected with people, who was articulate, eloquent. Um, Patrick thinks there was such jealousy um, that people... Um, who had uh, power over him resented and that that played a big part in him not rising to a chairmanship and uh, a chairman and CEO position. Um, although he got very close, um, he never quite made that. Um, and I think Patrick's got something there. Um, easy, easy for less accomplished people um, to be jealous of someone like that. I was just going to ask where you think he stands among the you know the all time greats um, of the car industry. You know we we think back to you know everybody from Henry Ford to Colin Chapman. W. I mean how 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 big a figure is he, um, and how will history regard him? I think he's, he certainly is a very big figure. Um, you could say that there are more significant people such as Akio Toyota with what he's done over the past 10 or 12 years in transforming Toyota. Um, but he's only done that within a, in a, within a single company. Um, Ferdinand Pieck um, had a profound effect across the Volkswagen group, and that embraced more, um, uh, more brands than Bob has. So you could say that Pieck possibly outstrips um, Lutz. Um, Tavares, at the current uh, boss of Stellantis, um, he skates across a number of brands as well. Um, whether history will say he's ultimately bigger, in, in Bob's view, he he puts Pieck and Tavares above um, his, above his role in the contribution to the industry. Um, but he's certainly, in my view, he's certainly in in the top five and maybe the top three. It's it's interesting, isn't it, that when you think of all these people, the guys you've just named, Toyota and. Tavares um, and Lutz. You know the one thing that all the, and PX definitely the one thing all these guys have got in common. Um, very different in characters, but they're all car guys. 
And so what is interesting is that if you actually want to have a transformative effect on your company, um, you know, given that so many of these CEOs were the bean counters and clearly didn't, if I was looking for, you know, somebody to fulfill that role, I think presumably number one on the to-do list is get a guy who absolutely loves cars. That has to be the, you know, because if you look at the people who have done it over time, that's the one thing they've all got in common. Absolutely. Um, and even coming down a level, when when Ford um, realised they had such a problem after that disastrous later escort that um, Autocar and <laughs> someone I'm currently talking to panned mercilessly and correctly, when Ford then realised they couldn't go on making cars like that, that it was just cynical, penny-pinching um, kind of car that was going to ultimately fail in the marketplace outside Britain, um, they realised they had to do something and get walk so look around for a car guy. Oh, guess what? We've got this engineer called Richard Parry Jones. So let's put him in charge of engineering. Richard was on his way to running the the Ford's um, factory in Cologne when someone thought, "Gosh, we better do something." So they plucked him out of there, put him in charge of engineering, and then ultimately engineering of the entire company. And I think at um, its peak, Richard had 35,000 engineers and designers reporting to him, um, as well as Volvo, Jaguar, um, and um, Land Rover, um, everybody there, as well as Ford. So in the end, you're entirely right, Andrew. You have to have the people who know how to make a good car that people will want to, um, to not only want to buy, but are going to feel pleased with. It has to be have some kind of satisfying aspect to it um <clears throat> andrew last week or the week before you wrote a very short uh, blog for us about the closest you got to enzo ferrari yes um, one word one one word yeah in in that per- famous purple link one word his name um sorry he died as uh, as i joined autocar um so i think he died in 1988 uh, i joined autocar in June of 1988. Um, I just read Mel's review of the F40, uh, a car I didn't get to drive for many years after that. But yeah, so no, our paths did. But no, my father, um, who had a few unimportant Ferraris, um, had did manage to get um, a friend of his to get Ferrari to sign a book, which I have on my shelves here. Um, but that's it. But Mel, I think you, uh, I, I think you were rather. Um, you have a rather closer experience to um, to the old man than um, than I ever did. So, um, yeah, how, how many times did you meet him? Was it just the once? No, no, um, six or eight, I think, Andrew. Um, I should I should try and figure it out. Um, I don't know why, but somehow he seemed to like me. Um, before I left Australia in 1973, and for the three years before that, I'd been on Wheels magazine with Peter Robinson. But I also did a separate magazine of which I was editor called Sports Car World. Um, And, uh, I mean, not uncommon in those days for um, a couple of people to do a couple of magazines between them. Um, um, But whenever I used to get us, we we did a few stories about Ferraris, um, Dino 246, uh, 365, uh, GTC, that sort of thing. but it occurred to me that it might be a good idea when the magazines came out to send a copy to Marinello. Um, 
So I did that, and I almost got a polite letter back from Dr. Franco Gozzi, who um, was Enzo's right-hand man. He was officially the press officer, but he was absolutely Enzo Ferrari's confidant and fixer. Um, the con- some people called him the consigliere, um, and that's a fairly apt description because he's the confidential advisor and knew absolutely everything that was going on in and around Enzo Ferrari. Anyway, so when I decided to leave um, Australia in 1973 and go directly to Italy because Bob Wallace, the Lamborghini test driver, had said to me, look, you've got to come to Italy this year. It's the last Targa Florio. Um, I'm going down, come, come, come to Italy and we'll all get together there. So I had been intending to come to Europe that year, um, but just got my skates on and packed up and left um, in early May uh, in order to get to Sicily for the Targa, um, about which, of course, we've written recently um, in the intercooler. Um, anyway, so I'd written to Franco Gozzi to say, look, um, could I possibly come to Maranello, um, have a look at the factory, perhaps the racing department? If it's not too much to ask, could I take a car out? Um, for a story and some photography, and might it be possible to meet Mr. Ferrari? Um, letter came back from Franco saying, yes, yes, of course, all possible. Just give me a call when you get to Modena. Um, so I did that and um, got myself settled into a hotel in Modena, rang Franco the next morning. Um, and he said, yes, yes, of course. Um, he said, all possible. He said, but you have to remember, I am a terrible liar. Um, so my friend Pete, who travelled with me, and I drove out the next day. Fiat had very kindly lent us a 124 Sport Coupe. So we drove out to Maranello, and there looming um, on the left of the road as we went out are suddenly those famous gates. So we drove in, told the gate man who we were and that um, we'd come to see Dr. Gotzi. Um, yes, fine. So Franco came out, effusive um, as ever, threw his arms wide, um, and, ah, thank goodness you're here, he said. Um, and he said, we will be able to do some th- do um, some of the things you ask. Anyway, he lent me a car. Pete and I went out for a couple of hours. Um, uh, that was a, um, a 365 GT, GT4, by the way, sweet car. Um, and then we came back. Franco took us personally around the factory. Um, and as you may remember from some of the pictures we used with that story we wrote, in TI early on, it was really quite ramshackle then. Lots of broken windows, um, bits of old castings out in the courtyard, prototypes, scruffy-looking prototypes coming and going, um, uh, hardly anyone wearing smart overalls, just whatever they had. Um, um, so that was a shock. wasn't what I expected. Anyway, at the end of the day, there's a moment that I will never forget. Um, we were in the racing department, and Franco, who'd nipped out for a while, came back in and put his left hand under my right elbow and took me to lead me gently. And he said the immortal words, Mr. Ferrari is waiting to see you. <laughs> oh, dear. So anyway, we then went through um, across the other building where Enzo's office was. As you know, Andrew, very unpretentious. Nothing flash about it at all. Um, in through the antechamber where an attendant sat. Um, 
waiting for a, a buzz from Enzo, he had a little buzzer under his desk that if he wanted something, he'd push that and the attendant would have to leap into action. Anyway, so we went in and sat down in front of Enzo Ferrari um, and he had some of the copies of Sports Car World that I'd sent to Franco on his desk. So Franco had obviously briefed him who I was. But I look back in horror now because um, it was the, I, I'd grown a long beard during the – it was hippie, hippie time, um, and I'd grown a long beard that I never quite got around to shaving off or even tidying up much. So here's this scruffy bloke from Tasmania, turns up in Enzo Ferrari's office with a rather long reddish beard, not much hair, um, and um, I subsequently realised rather ill-dressed. Um, but I think Enzo Ferrari found something amusing about it. He was this bloke from the other side of the world who rocks up boulders brass um, and starts asking him questions. But the thing that really connected was that I, um, I told him that I'd just come from the Targa Florio, and it was like flicking a switch. He beamed and leaned back in his chair and threw his arms wide. Oh, the Targa Florio, he said. And he talked about driving down there himself in 1919 um, when he, he drove all the way um, from Turin um, down, raced. Um, do you remember that lovely anecdote about him keeping a pistol under his seat to repel um, any um, bandits and indeed had to use it against some wolves um, up in the Apennines when he suddenly got bailed up by wolves? Um, anyway, um, he, so he loved he loved Sicily and loved the Targa, and um, I told him a couple of uh, Sicilian jokes I'd heard while down there, and um, so I think that's what suddenly made him um, very behave warmly towards me, um, and he suddenly reached down, pushed the buzzer under his desk, in the, the attendant came scurrying in, Enzo said something to him. Um, the bloke went out and came back with a big white polystyrene box. And um, I put it on my lap. And anyway, he indicated to me that I should open it. So I opened it and um, in there was a very large um, ceramic ashtray, yet bright yellow with the black horse in the middle. Um, now, I didn't smoke, um, but I can tell you that my father back in Tasmania subsequently was a very grateful recipient and kept that <laughs> ashtray all his life um, and used to tell people, Enzo Ferrari gave this to my son. Um, anyway, um, so we talked on a bit more. Um, I, was, I have to admit I was somewhat intimidated. Um, um, and although he understood a bit of English, um, of course he never really let on, but Franco was a terrific um, translator, or at least um, told Enzo Ferrari something that wasn't going to upset him too much. Um, so it was a, a genial enough conversation of no, no great weight, except he got passionate about talking about Sterling Moss, whom he admired immensely and wished he'd driven for it, um, and, and that he short, thought Jody Schechter had the potential to be terrific um, if he didn't kill himself first. Um, anyway, at another point, then he pushed the button under the table and that... Um, uh, attendant came uh, back in again. Enzo said something to him again, and this time he returned with a book, um, which Enzo put on his desk, opened to the flyleaf, picked up his um, pen with the famous purple ink, and signed um, the book dedicated to me. So 
as you know, Anna, uh, Andrew, and, and this is the hugest honour. Um, of course, I have that book. It's in the shelves here behind me. And I have two others that was he signed on uh, later occasions. He also gave me a tie um, and later on um, a briefcase, which I have. It's a bit battered because I actually did use it a lot and I'm sort of thinking now what it's probably worth. Um, I, wish it, I wish it were pristine, but anyway, I did get great pleasure out of using it. But for some reason, every time I went back to Marinello after that as editor of Car, at the end of the day, um, so Franco would fix up a car. Usually, usually, Andrew, the day would start, you get there at nine o'clock in the morning and Franco would come out and say, oh, if only you told us you were coming, a car might have been possible. This is following um, a whole series of letters, um, telegrams, subsequently faxes, um, all of that. Uh, even phone calls, yes, yes, it'll be fine, and get there and Franco says, oh, if only we'd known you were coming. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, so it, it, I picked up various cars and take them out for a day's um, driving and photography, um, come back, and at the end of the day, they, they'd like you to be back at 6 o'clock. And subsequently, and hugely fortunately for me, Enzo would say, ah, Mr. Mr. Ferrari is ready to see you now. So I went back in many times to see um, the old man, who was as gracious as ever, never wanted to talk for more than five minutes, um, but that was fine. Well, what an honour um, to go and see him. And so somehow down all these years, I just think he um, he somehow viewed me kindly. As, as we know, he didn't treat everybody um, all that <laughs> kindly. It just sounds like it's impossible to really interrogate the man because it's such an honor such a privilege to be there it must can you even be the dispassionate journalist and you know ask the tough questions or do you just have to sort of enjoy his company and soak in the atmosphere i think you're not going to get very far if you do if you do that because first of all um i think franco would have always filtered it um and so unless you spoke italian um, and could speak directly to Enzo Ferrari. That was probably not going to happen. And I also think um, he wouldn't have tolerated very much. He'd have cut cut it off um, before it got um, to a point that he wasn't happy with. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Do you think the best book about it all um, is Brock Yates's book, Andrew? Well, 
it's i love that book um it's yeah it's by the american um journalist and screenwriter the late um brock yates and he also wrote the cannibal runs and that sort of thing and it's a polemic um it's a book that goes out if you haven't got it it's it's well worth a read to sort of deconstruct the myth of enzo ferrari and and it's fair to say that enzo doesn't come out of it looking great um and he goes into you know the relationships that he had with his drivers and the way that he manipulated people and everything else and because you know i i i'm someone who sort of grew up um absolutely uh, adoring ferrari and all things ferrari i just found it very very interesting to learn this sort of this other side of it and in many ways it actually brought made the whole thing a lot more real um you know certainly of anybody um who was alive even briefly at the same time that i was that i wish i could have met and didn't meet it was it was enzo ferrari because to me he is such an extraordinary contradiction i mean he made he created the greatest sports car manufacturer in the world to this day um the cars they produce um stay true to his original vision but I, but I, but you know that said i love the fact that he had no interest in, his, in the road cars they were a means of raising revenue to provide them the money to allow him to go on to go on racing and i just don't know how something that you have apparently so little interest in um can nevertheless produce such amazing stuff so i don't know whether he just said that or whether it's i, I, I don't know but the whole the whole all of ferrari is an enigma and none greater than the man who who created it and you know i just I'm, I'm so pleased that i have literally one word written in that famous purple felt tip um but to have met him you know six seven eight times as you did um you know if i'd done that there would have been no greater moment in my career i'm sure well i feel the same way andrew absolutely the same way Andrew, you must have met some interesting characters over the over the years. Can you can you give us one of those? Yeah, I, I was thinking. I mean, it, it's very it's very difficult when you when you're sitting here on a podcast with Mel and he's met Sashiro Honda and Enzo Ferrari and Bob Lutz. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to mention anyone that 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 Mel hasn't met too. But I guess you know, certain people I've met have left an impression on me. Um, either because they did amazing things uh, or because they were amazing people or sometimes both. I guess the, the one that I recall most fondly was Victor Gauntlet, um, the, the head of Aston Martin, the man who sort of oversaw the transition of Aston Martin from its days of, you know, existing on oldie-worldie charm to, you know, he was the man who sold the company to Ford and, and thereby, um, you know, sort of secured its future. And he was such a... He was a force of nature, Victor was. I don't think I've ever met anyone with more sheer character. I mean, you know, if you'd met him, you'd just think he'd been born in the wrong era and should have been a Spitfire pilot. Um, he had such charm, such charisma. Um, but, you know, he also said to me that he knew the company couldn't survive the way that he was doing it. Uh, and that if Aston Martin, this great, great brand, was going to have a future, um, it needed to be you know, under the wing of, you know, a large organisation uh, with a huge amount of clout, a large amount of technology and the, and the money to, you know, because Aston Martin has spent its entire career, um, you know, being far more ambitious than its resources would allow, um, usually with fairly catastrophic results. Uh, and, and it was Victor who recognised that that couldn't continue. And I think that when people look back at the history of Aston Martin, 
um, and you think of the great names. I think Victor's probably is the is the most underrated because ultimately, to me at least, he is the man who understood what was required. Um, and without him, without ha- him having the foresight to um, to recognise, and also, you know, to have the relationship with Walter Hayes, who was the man who oversaw the deal, and to recognise that Ford was the right partner, and so on. So, I mean, you know, at Aston Martin. I mean, who knows whether it would still exist, um, but he saved it. And I was terribly, terribly sad um, that he died. He died very young. He was about 63, 64, um, died very suddenly. Um, and I just, yeah, we, we just got on. We just got on really, really well because he was such good fun. Um, but he was also below that sort of rather, you know, uh, bombastic exterior. There was a man um, of integrity, a man of caliber and a man with a vision. Um, so I guess of all the, of, of the people that I remember most fondly, he's probably certainly up there. Yeah. And, and, uh, and a car guy. Oh, complete, complete car guy. I mean, car guy to his, to his boots, you know, seen charging around Europe in his vintage Bentley. Yeah. Um, you know, absolutely. You know, this is the man on whose watch, you know, Aston Martin went back to me. A- absolutely. I mean, as dyed in the wool, a car guy as you could ever want to meet. Fantastic. Um, Mel, I'm sort of tempted to stay in the um, the modern area, but I'm actually going to fly us all the way to Japan um, because you did also meet Soichiro Honda, founder of Honda. Again, that's an extraordinary thing to have done. Did he speak English or were you speaking through an interpreter again? Uh, an interpreter um, who, in fact, was a good friend of mine and of Soichiro Honda's, um, a wonderful man named Shotaro Kobayashi, um, Shotaro was the editor of the great Japanese magazine, Car Graphic. Um, as a young man, he'd um, grown up reading Autocar, which he had imported to Japan um, every week. Um, and he was a great Anglophile, um, and he wanted to have a magazine in Japan that was as close to Autocar as it could be, and that became Car Graphic. Um, I can't remember whether he owned the publishing company who produced it or not, um, but he certainly, for many, many years, was a distinguished editor of, of, um, of Car Graphic. Well, I happened to be at the 1981 um, Tokyo Motor Show, um, was walking around with Shotaro, and we saw uh, Sochiro Honda, um, and um, we walked around together, the three of us. Um, and um, so Shotaro um, translated. Um, he was a... So that that was a really interesting walk because you had two figures. Um, Honda was dressed very casually in a brown suede, from memory, brown suede um, uh, little bomber jacket, um, casual shoes, um, casual trousers. Um, Every other motor industry exec, uh, let alone people with their name on the door, were wearing, of course, um, full-on business suits. But it was just another um, indication of what a rule breaker uh, Sochiro Honda was. Um, uh, so there's him looking very casual. Um, he was then 76 and he'd only just retired. But um, Shotaro, uh, by contrast, was immaculately dressed as always in a business suit. And he had a great bearing about him because he came from an old distinguished uh, Shogun family. And wherever you'd go with him, people would bow down. You know how Japanese bow, but this was really deep, 
deep bowing, uh, indicating the greatest respect for someone uh, whose legend preceded them. And I don't know um, anything about Satura, uh, about um, um, Shotaro's uh, family, except that they he was proper nobility, um, and that was recognised. So walking around together, you'd see people were just clearing a path, and it wasn't just for Honda; it was also for the editor of Car Graphic, um, and so um, with me in the middle. So I thought it was this wonderful contrast of the very casually looking guy who ran a hugely significant international car and motorbike company and the other guy who was a magazine editor. But um, the night before, we'd been at the launch of the star of that year's Toyota uh, uh, Tokyo show, um, which was the Honda City. Um, that was a small car that tried to maximise um, space with inside uh, minimal dimensions it was inspired, as, high, as Honda acknowledged themselves, by the Mega Gamma that the Italian designer Giugetto Giugiaro had done, um, which was an exercise in getting as much space as possible within uh, a shape. Um, the future of the city car was really what he was looking at. And Honda had taken that to heart and put a lot of his ideas of space saving into the little city and Suchiro Honda was really excited about it um, because um, he'd said that the the car and its designer that had most inspired him um, to go on and do what he did was the Mini, which was designed by um, the British engineer Sir Alex Isagonis. Um, Alex had come up with the idea of having the... Um, Trans, transmission and gearbox, sorry, the engine and gearbox trans, transversely mounted to maximise space. So everything about the Mini inspired Honda. So he said to me, this is the sort of car I've wanted to build for years. Um, it shows that the Japanese motor industry isn't afraid to be different. Um, and he suddenly said to me, how is Sir Alex Isagonis? Um he was really personally interested in, in him. Um, and he said, look, I was more inspired by him in the Mini than anybody else or anything else in the motor industry. I owe him a great deal. Um, and I'd asked him wh uh, uh, what he was going to do That now that he was retired. He said, well, my problem is that um, my uh, the people now running the company won't let me ride my, um, ride my motorbikes um, enough. Uh, particularly the CX500 Turbo, which they'd just done. Um, but he also said that he was looking forward to getting back into Formula One with the new twin-turbo engine, uh, which he said was already giving uh, more than 550 horsepower. Um, and he said, my ambition is to see Honda lead the world in automotive technology. And given the, the quality of our staff, I think we will. He was really talking about... Um, the engineer Nobuhiko Kawamoto, who who he put in charge of all four-wheeled vehicle development, um, who was then in his 40s and did go on to be a truly dis distinguished engineer. Um, but um, he said he had, com had complete faith in all the people he'd handed over to. And, of course, he was proved um, absolutely right. But he was a wonderful, bubbly man, um, grin, great big grin ear to ear, which bared... Huge teeth, with many of them gold, um, 
So he, he wasn't what you expected, um, the way the head of a car company to look. But he was so um, effusive, so easy to be with, because, again, he was another proper car guy um, and who just loved anything to do with cars and bikes and was constantly looking for ways to make them better, more interesting, and was a, a true pioneer um, in the spirit of Is- Isagonis. I can see why he would have been inspired by Isagonis. In fact, Honda's rebelliousness and um, desire to break the rules go right back to his school days. I saw a little story about him recently that um, um, when he was at um, junior school, um, he the kids used to have to go home with their reports and have them signed by their parents. Um, he forged, um, he didn't want to show his parents, so he forged the family stamp. Apparently families all had a stamp. He forged a stamp um, and um, the other kids realised that that was a good thing to do. So they asked Honda to forge stamps for them. But there was something to do with the characters of the Honda name that would work um, uh, but didn't work for other uh, children's names. So he was found out and um, given a given a hard time. But just shows um, <laughs> the inventive Some ingenuity there. that was all, always there and and not going to be bound by rules. Wow. Um, we are quickly running out of time and we've got a couple more that I do want to get on to. So can you give us just a couple of minutes, please, on Ferruccio Lamborghini? Did he have any of the sort of mystique of Enzo or was he a totally different kind of character? Well, he was a different character. I didn't... didn't um, I only met him twice and very briefly. Um, the first time, um, when it was the first time I went to Lamborghini, and um, I was taken up to his to his office to meet him, um, and he said um, again through uh, an interpreter, "Look, I'm terribly sorry. Something urgent's come up, and I have to leave. But you're welcome to stay here, and my staff will bring you lunch, um, etc." So I ended up sitting for quite a long time in Ferruccio Lamborghini's office, but without him there. Um, however, he did, he was, um, he was friendly, um, um, always had an air of busyness about him, um, rushing from one thing to the next, as indeed happened that day. Um, um, he was a rather swarthy-looking character um, who didn't have quite the presence about the ferocious looking presence about him that Enzo Ferrari did. He did seem more approachable. Um, and you would see him around the factory with his sleeves rolled up. Um, he, he didn't sit in his office all day. He did go out around the factory because of, of course he had come from making, being a mechanic and making, um, his first tractors himself, um, using parts from former British army, um, uh, trucks after the war. Um, but I knew quite a lot about him directly from Bob Wallace, um, the New Zealand test driver uh, who'd been hired uh, directly by Ferruccio, um, who'd been told that Bob was a really good mechanic and they, when he was at Maserati and they really should um, get hold of him. And um, so Bob said, look, the great thing about Ferruccio is that he's a delegator. Um, he tries to hire good people and then he just lets us get on with it. And he's quite prepared to be contradicted. He's prepared to be argued with. Um, so we're able to push our case. 
um, we meaning uh, Bob and um, um, Giampaolo um, Delara, um, crucially, that brilliant, brilliant engineer um, uh, who really was the creator of um, Lamborghinis, particularly the chassis, um, and um, Paolo Stanzani, who um, joined that team too. Um, they were really the cre- the three of them were the creators of Lamborghinis as we came to know them. Um, and they felt they had tremendous freedom to get on and do the best they could because of Frucho's attitude. Um, and he knew that he couldn't do it all himself, so he trusted them. Um, and not surprisingly, they found that fantastically enticing um, to be there working for a boss like that, able to create exactly what they thought um, was the best way to make uh, sports cars and touring cars. Ferruccio himself didn't really want to build a car like the Mura. He wanted to build um, GT cars, hence the first 350 GT, um, because that's the car he wanted for himself. Um, having had um, trouble with his own 250 GT Ferraris, um, particularly with the clutch, and I'm sure everyone knows the story, but it might be just worth repeating, where he was, he took the clutch out of his 250 GT when it had failed again and looked at it and thought, crikey, that's not as good as the clutches that I put in my tractors. Um, I can do a better clutch than that. So the story goes, and I was told this story by his son, um, that he went to Marinello, asked to see Ferruccio, and after a long wait, Julie did, and said, look, I can, if you use my system, that will end your clutch problems. And Ferrari uh, dismissed him out of hand and said, effectively, what would you know? You're just a um, a tractor maker. Anyway, so that enraged um, Ferruccio and pushed him down the path to building his own car and thus the creation of Lamborghini. Um, But um, he was also... um, very forward-looking in that he believed in having the best facilities you could, and hence Lamborghini. Um, Another key difference between Lamborghini and Ferrari at the time was that when setting up the factory, he equipped it with the most modern uh, machinery he could, particularly um, early computer-driven machining tools. Um, And people like um, Bob Wallace um, uh, deeply valued that because it meant they could make... um, anything they wanted to make to the highest possible tolerances. And and Bob himself would go down into the factory at the end of the day after um, having driven for eight or 12 hours. Um, and if he thought a new part needed making because something had not performed so well or indeed even broken uh, during the day's stress drive, he would go down into the factory himself and um, work something out and machine it up and put it in the car and try it out the next day. Um, so that was the kind of atmosphere there that Ferruccio had created. And I think without that, um, Lamborghini would have been nothing like it but it was, uh, indeed, or had the success that it did, because it was from that fantastic atmosphere of creativity that the Mura came. Um, and uh, also his attitude applied not just to his own staff, the engineers, um, but also to the designers, um, hence the relationship um, with Bettoni. Um, that enabled um, shapes like the Mura um, to come through. And, of course, he was a car guy because he loved cars himself, um, 
although he he wasn't able to make a car himself he um he did love cars and had um and he cared so much about his ferrari not being um adequate uh that he wanted to make something better um so finally last one that i want to talk about and we'll be very brief about this um gianni agnelli i mean goodness me a fascinating guy um perhaps worthy of a podcast episode all on his own the archetypal aristocratic italian industrialist um son of the of fiat founder giovanni um he was fiat chairman and principal shareholder he served in in the italian army in world war 2 as the head of fiat he controlled 4.4% of italy's gdp 4.4% of a nation's gdp controlled by one man um held public office as well goodness me i mean of all of these characters was he the most sort of intimidating i think he was because he had this extraordinary bearing about him his family um was a mixture of italian aristocracy and american wealth there was an american heiress i think it was his grandmother um but he he was he was tall um but he just had this bearing about him that was as people have so often said like a renaissance prince and he was aware of that um as well he kind of grown up with it and into it um he dressed impeccably and was an a fashion icon in italy um uh, and indeed internationally um so you never saw him less than absolutely immaculately dressed and immaculately dressed in a way that stood out so that went with his physical presence so tall um rather craggy lined face always tanned with the flowing wavy silver hair going back from it um slightly long um bit unusual for someone in his position so i think that was the touch of the renegade about him um uh when you t- he was always polite and charming but never said much or not that i saw in uh, on the times that i met him usually it was at things like shows or launches or functions um but he would acknowledge everyone shake hands politely um but then move on um as people like that tend to do there was an an air of royalty about him really um so always polite but usually as far as i saw um his answers were yes or no if that was adequate um and so that in, is intimidating in itself because you're not inclined to go on and <laughs> and ask more questions or get into a complicated conversation but certainly certainly charming and absolutely present had presence if you saw him come into a motor show everything just stopped and people would make way because clearly he was a man of great importance and it wasn't just for the number of of um people around him um it was his own presence um and of course he had terrible tragedy in, in his life that his son who eduardo whom he had hoped would um take over the uh, fiat just as he'd inherited uh, from his grandfather who'd started the company um but his son who was born in 1954 um in the end um jani realized that there was no uh, point in trying to groom his son to take over fiat because the boy was more interested in mysticism than making cars and that his son seemed burdened by the mantle of the anelli name and indeed this was so um uncomfortable about it all and unhappy that he um committed suicide 
uh, by jumping off a bridge near Turin in terrible, terrible tragedy. Um, so a great sadness about um, Gianni's life as well. Um, um, so that even though he was the wealthiest man in modern Italian history, um, he still had these other terrible uh, things in his life. Goodness me. <clears throat> well, we do need to wrap this up. Um, but I'm, I'm so glad, Mel, that you had the good fortune to meet all these people because we get to quiz you about them and, and hear about them. Um, so it's a huge privilege for us. But um, many thanks for taking the time to come on and talk to us. And <clears throat> as you've already said, you have written about meeting Enzo Ferrari, you have written about meeting Bob Lutz and about... Um, everything that Lutz achieved, certainly in his career. Um, and those stories are available now on the Intercooler. Um, so please do go and check them out. We'll be back next week with another episode of the podcast. But for now, Mel, thank you for joining us. My great pleasure. Thank you very much, Dan and Andrew. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.